Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to be in verses 20 through 34. We've got about 15 verses to cover this morning, so we're going to have to move through this uh, fairly quickly. Uh, the title of our lesson this morning is, What the Resurrection Means for You. What the Resurrection Means for, for You. Now, just a, a brief review of what we've done so far. In, in verses 1 through 19 over the last two or three weeks, we've seen Paul's actually done two things. The first thing he did in verses 1 through 11 is he's restated the gospel. In other words, he said very positively that, yes, Jesus has risen from the dead. And then last week, he looked at the negative scenario. He said, okay, you, you don't think there's a resurrection? What if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? And you can go back and read that in verses 12 through 19, and what you saw is that if Jesus isn't written from the dead, risen from the dead, then we might as well go home, that, that none of this matters. We're just wasting our time. Uh, Paul will tell us later, just go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you're going to die, and that's, you might as well squeeze as much pleasure out of life as you can. If he's not, everything hinges on whether or not he rose from the dead. And this brings us to today's passage, verses 20 through 34. And we're going to walk through this a verse at a time. Verse 20, Jesus, uh, Paul says this, But in fact... Okay, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen um, asleep. Now, he uses the term first fruits here. Now, this is something that's a little weird to us because I doubt very many of us here are, are farmers. But in that day, everybody, the society was what was called an agrarian society. That means everybody, pretty much, except people maybe in the very elite or in the cities, everybody raised their own food. Um, so they were very familiar with this term that Paul used uh, called first fruits, not only in Israel but all throughout uh, the civilized world. Everybody understood that the first fruits were the first elements or the first pickings of a crop. We said this last week. If you planted corn or barley or, or fruit, your, your first fruits would be the first picking or the first harvest. And when the first fruits came in, what that meant was that was a sign of there was, going to be, there was going to be more. It was a sign of the harvest to come. So Jesus is called the first fruits. Now, this is all throughout the Bible. In fact, you'll remember in John 12, 24, Jesus said that he himself would be like a seed. Buried. He said if a seed dies and, and it falls into the ground, unless it dies, it doesn't bring forth much fruit. And so Jesus always had, even himself, had prophesied that he would be like a seed that dies and he would bring forth uh, much fruit. So his resurrection is a sign of resurrections to come. Now, which by the way is a good point, to point a place to point something out. Jesus is not the first fruits of the resurrection because he was the first to rise from the dead. Okay, He's called the first fruit. Everybody with me? He's the first fruits, which means there's more resurrections to come. But he's not called that because he was the first person ever to rise from the dead. In fact, Jesus himself was not the first person to rise from the dead. If you look in the Bible, for example, in 1 Kings 17, you know, remember Elijah raises the son of the widow of Zarephath. Everybody remember that story. If you go to 2 Kings 4, Elisha raises the son of the Shunammite woman. Um, you remember there in uh, 2 Kings 13... There's the case of a man who touched Elijah's bones. Everybody remember that story from the Old Testament? And he was raised from the dead. And then in the New Testament, Jesus himself raised at least three people 
that we know of. He raised the son of the widow of Nain in Luke 7. He raised the daughter of Jairus in Luke 8. And of course, he raised Lazarus in John 11. So there's at least six or seven people right there that had been raised from the dead. So Jesus is called the first fruits, not because he was the first to rise from the dead. That's not why he's called the first fruits. Anybody want to guess why he's called the first fruits? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. See, he's called the first fruits for that very reason. His resurrection wasn't like theirs. He is the first person to ever rise from the dead and never to die again. See, those people, listen, Lazarus died. Even after Jesus raised him from the dead, eventually he died again. All the, the, Jairus' daughter, he rose, Jesus raised her from the dead. Eventually she died. But Jesus is the only one who has risen from the dead never to die again. Uh, again, again, he, that's why he's called the first fruits. He is the first fruits of those, by the way, like him, which is you and I, who if you believe in him, you will rise from the dead never to die again. Okay? So, so that's why he's called the first fruits of the resurrection. And by the way, Corinthians isn't the only place it's, he's referred to this week. In Colossians 1.8, Paul says this, He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. Okay? That's, that's another way to say the first fruits of the resurrection. He's called the firstborn of the dead. Uh, John the Revelator in Revelation says this, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. So Jesus Christ is the first person to ever rise from the dead and never to die again. Okay? And, and he is a sign that there will be more resurrections like that one. Not, not more resurrections where people die and, and, and then eventually die. He is, there's going to be more resurrections where people die and never die uh, again. Now, at this point, the Corinthians may be saying, okay, Paul, we know Christ rose from the dead, but we still don't believe... Uh, no, okay, let me back up. We know Christ rose from the dead, but what's the big deal? In other words, what's the connection between him and us? Why is his resurrection a guarantee that, that we will rise. And in fact, why is it so important that he rose to, so that we will rise? And that is an absolutely valid uh, question. Why does it have to be like that? How are we to understand that one man's resurrection can have such an effect on you and I? See, I stand here today and I believe that one day I will rise from the dead never to die again. And I believe that because Jesus did it. Now, what's the connection why is that such a big deal? Why is, why is it that one man's resurrection can have such an effect on millions and billions of, of other people? Well, this is Paul's answer. Paul's answering this in verses 21 to 22. He says this, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, what Paul's trying to do here is show that the act of one man, Jesus, can affect literally billions of people. And in order to do this, he uses an illustration, or he uses an analogy, and he uses Adam as that il illustration. Now, how many of y'all here went through me with the study of Romans? Okay, probably about half of you. Now, this, this if you went through Romans with us a few years ago, this should be a very familiar argument, because Paul makes this same argument in, in Romans. What Paul says is, in Romans, Romans chapter 5, is one man sins, and that man was who? 
That man was Adam. And through the sin of that one man, death comes into the world. And his sin nature is passed down to every man and woman, every boy and girl that is ever born, who all sin and therefore all die. So what Paul tells us in Romans 5 is that death came to every single one of us because of who? Adam, one man. Okay, that's, that, he tells us that in Romans, in Romans chapter 5. By the way, yes, we all sin individually. Everybody in this room messes up and we sin. And by the way, every one of our sins must be covered by the blood of Jesus. Our sins are important. They are a huge problem. And, and Paul never shies away from that. He's very concerned about that. Yet what Paul teaches us in Romans 5 is that, and, and this may be new for some, some of you guys, and, and if you are, come get with me and I'll explain this all to you, but Paul teaches us in Romans 5 that our foundational problem that we have is not, yes, our sins are a big deal, but our real foundational problem is the connection that we all have with Adam. That's our problem. And that's, a, that's sometimes a hard argument for people to understand. But Paul says the very fact that you come from Adam, that's a big deal. And Romans 5 teaches us that. In fact, let me give you a few verses from Romans 5. It says this, By the transgression of the one who died. Many. See, his sin brought death to you. Look at verse 16. The judgment followed how many sins? One sin and brought condemnation. See, the fact is, Adam committed one sin and death came into the world and judgment and condemnation came on you because of that one sin. Look at verse 17. By the transgression of who? One man, death reigned through the one. In other words, death came to you die because of what Adam did. Look at verse 18. Through one transgression... There resulted condemnation to who? Everybody. You can't get any clearer than that. Paul says, one man's sin and all of you die. One man's sin and all of you are condemned. Okay? And in verse 19, through one man's disobedience, the many were made what? Sinners. Because of one man. One man did one sin and look at the misery and the destruction that came to this earth because of one man. Now, again, I'm not saying your sins aren't important. I'm not saying you don't have to pay for your sins. You do. But Paul tells us that our main underlying problem that we have when we come into this world is because of this man that we're connected to, this man that is our head or our representative. Behind all of our depravity and all of our guilt and all of our sinning, Paul says there's this deep connection with this man called Adam. It's a unity, a solidarity His sin became our sin. His judgment became our judgment. His condemnation became our condemnation. The damage that he did was inflicted on every single one of us. And and at this point, some of you might be thinking, well, that's not fair. You ever thought that? Why should I be condemned for what somebody else did? Anybody ever thought that? That doesn't seem fair. Be very careful if you say that. Because how can you say it's not fair that I... I get condemned for what Adam did. You can't turn around on the other hand and say, well, it's fair that I get credit for what Jesus did. Everybody with me? You can't have your cake and eat it too. You see, in fact, one of the things that makes it possible for Jesus 
to cover our sins is this, this, unit, that, this precedence that's been set. And we, we won't go too deep into that. So like it or not, Adam serves as our head, our representative. His sin brings condemnation and judgment on us all. By the way, let me say this again, and we've all heard this. You are not a sinner because you sin. Okay? You sin because you are a sinner. Let me say it again. You don't, you don't come into this world lily white. Everybody thinks these little babies come into this world and they're just absolutely pure, <clears throat> lily white, innocent. Give them a year. <clears throat> Trust me. You do not have to teach children to be bad, do you? Why? Because that's who they are. It's natural. It's sin is born into them. That sin nature is in them. You have to teach them to be good. You don't have to teach them. Just leave them alone. They'll be bad. That, because that's who we are. We're born bad. Um, so from Adam on... There is a solidarity of guilt, a solidarity of fallenness, a solidarity of corruption with all human beings with, with him. We are guilty because we belong to Adam. Whether you like that or not, that's what Paul says. Because we are his offspring, we possess a nature that is dying and fallen and sinful. Remember a few weeks ago, uh, a couple weeks ago, I think what Paul said in verse 8. He said, last of all, as to me... One untimely born, Jesus appeared to me. And I pointed out that word that in the Greek, untimely born, it literally means I'm a miscarriage. I am an abortion. <clears throat> Remember that? that? That's the Greek word that means miscarriage or abortion. You see, what Paul is saying is the same thing that other scripture says. For example, in Psalm 58.3 it says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. See, you come into this world, even in the womb, you are separated from God. You are estranged from God. You don't, you don't come into this world perfect. You, you're already an enemy of God before you're even born. See, what Paul is saying is, when I was born, I, I was already a son of Adam. I, I didn't have the life of God in me. I'm, I'm already rejected. I'm already an outcast. I'm already an enemy of God. I'm already spiritually dead when I'm born. I'm already guilty before God from my mother's womb. That, that's what he means. I, I'm, a, I, I'm a miscarriage. I don't have the life of God in me. Okay? Now here's the good news. Look at, let's read those two verses again. For as by one man came death, guess what? By one man also comes the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all are made alive. The bad news is that one man messed you up. The good news is that one man can turn it all around. By that one man, you got judged guilty of death. By this one man, that's all wiped away, and you're justified as innocent before God. That's what Paul's saying. One man brought the bad, one man brings the good. One man brings the death, one man brings the life. You see, uh, your union in solidarity with, with Adam is what causes you to die. But in the same way, a union or solidarity with Christ causes you to live. Everybody who's in Adam are going to die. Everybody who's in Christ are going to live. Listen, remember the question we asked, why is our resurrection like Christ? Look at Romans 6, 5. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly... 
we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. See, your union with Christ means that when you're resurrected, you'll be resurrected and never die again. All because you're in solidarity with Him. Everybody see that? I mean, that's an amazing, amazing message right there. But it doesn't all take place at once. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. Paul says there's an order to it. Verse 23, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. This is the Christian hope here that Paul is talking about, the fact that Christ is going to come at the end of the age. Right now, the Bible teaches us that when we die, our bodies will stay in the grave and decay. Our spirits go to be with the Lord. And if any of you doubt that, look at 1 Corinthians 5, 8, or 2 Corinthians 5, 8. He says, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and where? at home with the Lord. There's kind of this, I don't, you, we can't really explain it, but when you die, the Bible says your soul or your spirit goes to be with the Lord. Your body just goes into the grave and, and, and begins to decay. Okay, So we're separate from our body, but we're at home uh, with the Lord. But there's coming a day, Paul tells about this in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's a separation for a while, but then there's one day Jesus is coming back. And when he does, those dead bodies, I don't care if they're in the sea, I don't care if they've been blown to smithereens by a bomb, it don't matter. They're going to come back together and they're going to go and be reunited with their souls and with their spirits. Okay, that's what the Bible teaches us. We are raised at his coming. Then... Paul says this happens in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. This is the next verse. Then comes the end, the Greek word there is telos, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. There's a big word in Christianity called eschatology, and it means the study of the end times. Everybody ever heard that word, you know, just like... um, Physiology is the study of the human body, and theology is the study of God. Eschatology means the study of the end times. And it is a fascinating study. You know, you you talk about the rapture, you talk about the tribulation, you talk about the millennial kingdom, you talk about all those things. But we're not going to go into all that today because Paul doesn't. He doesn't say it at all. In fact, in today's scripture, Paul wraps all of that up in four words. Then comes the end telos, or then comes the end. So we're not going to go any deeper in that because Paul doesn't. But let me tell you, that the translation there for the Greek word telos, that, that the English translates the end, that's a little too simplistic. It literally means then comes the fulfillment of the goal, the purpose, the, the whole design of history, the whole plan of God from the very beginning, the whole consummation of everything comes to a, comes to a head. This is really, folks, if you don't take time to read this, this is an incredible portion of the Scripture. Paul here is describing what creation is all about. He's describing what redemption is all about, what the death of Christ is all about, why God has put up with everything that He's put up with down throughout the ages. He's talking about it right here. It has all been so that God can have a kingdom. Uh, Pastor Henry, last Sunday in his, his sermon, said so that God can have a family. So that God can bring to His Son a group of redeemed people who will love Him and honor Him and worship Him and treasure Him forever. That's always been the end goal. 
so that God can deliver a family, a, a people, of redeemed, a redeemed people to his, to his Son. It is a kingdom of resurrected human beings, the redeemed of all the ages. So Christ has come back, the, everybody's raised, all the Old Testament saints, all the New Testament saints, everybody that's been redeemed, they're all raised now, they're all in heaven, and Paul said, then comes the end. Now there's some time, like I said, there's a, a, a tribulation, there's a millennium, there's all kind of stuff goes on, but Paul just wraps it up into four words and said, then comes the end. Then comes the end. Read it again. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. What he's saying here is this plan of redemption is not complete is there until there are no more enemies of God. There's coming a time where every unbeliever, the false prophet, the antichrist, Satan, all of his demons... They're all cast forever into the lake of fire. And they're all bound there with Satan and his angels for whom it was originally created, and they're going to dwell there forever, never again to impede the purposes of, of God. And then there's one more enemy that has to be done away with. Paul says in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. No more dying. So you got all these people raised into heaven. They're all there with, with Jesus now. All of his enemies have been cast into the lake of fire, and there's no more dying. That's all been put aside. And, and everything, this is the end, Paul says. This is what it's been all about. And I want you to watch what happens. Again, you're at the end. The redeemed of the Lord are resurrected. The enemies of God are cast into the lake of fire. Death is done away with. And watch what Paul says. Look at verses 24 to 28. Then comes the end... When he, talking about Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When all things are subjected to him, talking about Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to, to the Father who has put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Now this is amazing. You, you want to know what's going to happen at the very, very end? Paul's telling us. When the Son has received all of redeemed humanity into the kingdom... When every knee has bowed, when every tongue has confessed that, yes, you are King of kings and Lord of lords, when every enemy of God has been cast into the lake of fire, never to be seen again, when death has been completely done away with and the kingdom is handed over to the Son, Paul says the Son takes the kingdom and he gives it back to the Father. All that God has done for him and put into his hands, Paul says he turns it around and he gives it back to the Father in an act of love. You see, most times when you and I think about salvation, we think of it as a very personal thing, do we not? In other words, when we talk about salvation and the plan of redemption, we say things like, He loved us. He died for me. He saved me. He's going to raise me. He's coming back for me. And by the way, that's all true. And it's perfectly fine for you to say that. But when you step back and look at the picture, in reality, it's about much more than just God saving you. In reality, it's about the love that a son has for the father and a father has for the son. It's about a father wanting to give to the son a gift of love, of redeemed humanity. As I said earlier, it's going to love him and praise him and honor him and worship him down throughout eternity. And, and the Father gives this kingdom to His Son. 
But then it turns around and it says it's about a son that loves a father so much and says, here, I, I give it back to you. That's what it's all about. That's the big picture right there about a, 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 the love a son has for his father and the love that the father has for the, the son. So that at the end, the Bible says, everything is restored to God that he may be all in all. Now, that's a beautiful picture, right? It's, 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 it's unbelievable. That is such high scripture right there that you could just meditate on that and be, be encouraged by that. And then, <laughs> Paul is going to turn around now and give us one of the most confusing scriptures that I have ever seen in the Bible. And I don't know any other way to tell you. It is the most confusing scripture I've ever seen in the Bible. Verse 29. Otherwise, Paul says, what do people... Now, he's talking... He's, remember, he's trying to prove the resurrection, is he not? He's saying there is a resurrection. Jesus has been raised. And he goes through all of this theology. Then he says this. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf okay everybody see that so Paul is saying something here about being baptized for dead people it is a confusing 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 scripture now let me first point out before I talk about the scripture let me point out a few things there are no other verses anywhere in the Bible nowhere that talk about or teach us to be baptized on behalf of dead people in fact, the Bible teaches us, does it not, that baptism won't even save who? It won't even save you. What saves us? Faith in Christ alone. That's it. The thief on the cross, Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Did he get baptized? No. It was his faith in Christ that saved him, not baptism. Baptism is an act of obedience that we should do if we can at all possibly do it. But it doesn't save us. But yet, it seems here there are people that are being baptized on behalf of the dead. So there's nothing else in the Bible about it. The Bible doesn't teach us that baptism saves us. By the way, if you go back through church history and you, and you read Jerome and you read some of the church fathers, nobody ever wrote about it. There's no hint that anybody in early church history ever practiced this at all. Nobody, no Orthodox Christian uh, ever practiced this. In fact, there is no Orthodox Christian denomination today that practices baptism on the dead. The only people in the world today that practice baptism on behalf of the dead is Mormons. You probably don't even know that, do you? But Mormons believe that if you're baptized on behalf of the dead, that they can get to this third... There's, it's really confusing. Mormons believe in multiple heavens. But only Mormons who are baptized in the temple get to go to the the highest heaven where Jesus is and God is. And so they believe you can be baptized for dead people. So if you go to Mormon temples, there's always baptisms going on. In fact, one Mormon, uh, one Mormon bragged I read, he says, I've saved more people than Jesus Christ. That's how many people he's been baptized for. So there, there's, there, that has, and by the way, they get all that from this one scripture. Okay? But no other Christians have ever wrote about it. It's not taught in the Bible or anything like that. So, as Christians, how are we to understand this verse? Now, let me say something about this, and here's the danger. Christian teachers have long been hesitant to teach something as crucial when it's only mentioned one time. In other words, if you find something in the Bible and it's only mentioned one time, 
Can I tell you, it can't be that important, right? Now, it doesn't mean that the more something is mentioned, the truer it is. That's, that's not what I'm saying. The, the more something is mentioned, the, the more true it is. But I'm telling you in the Bible, if something is important, it's taught over and over and over and over and over again. It's explained over and over and over uh, again. So again, if something is mentioned only once, you cannot give it the same importance as something that, as some of the major central themes of Scripture. As I mentioned, things in Scripture that are really crucial are mentioned multiple times. Secondly, it's also very dangerous. When something is only mentioned one time and it's not explained, it, it, it really lends itself to being misinterpreted, right? Because you only got one little Scripture and people just misinterpret it, okay? Um, because the, the more things are explained, the more they're clarified, are they not? So when it's not, it's only mentioned one time, it, it's not very clear. This has happened throughout the years on this verse. By the way, I, I think I read, a, I read an article on it. There have been over 40 different interpretations of this verse. For example, one person said the Christians in Corinth were being baptized into the ranks of the dead by martyrdom. In other words, when it says, why are people being baptized on behalf of the dead... Somebody said, well, that means they're being martyred. Well, that, don't, that makes no sense, what they're saying. Somebody said, else said this was ordinary Christian baptism taking place over graves of the dead. I don't even know where they get that from. Um, somebody else said new Christians were being baptized to replace Christians who had died. Everybody see how you're just... People are just reaching, okay? But those interpretations are not very credible. The most plausible explanation or interpretation is that some people in Corinth were getting baptized vicariously or in proxy for the dead. Everybody with me? That was just going on. People were being, somebody had died that couldn't get baptized. Maybe they got saved in a jail cell and they got martyred and they were never baptized. And somebody said, oh, we, we got to be baptized for them. And so they would be baptized vicariously or in, in proxy. Now, here's the problem. Paul mentions this, but he doesn't condemn it and he doesn't endorse it. He just makes a statement about it. Everybody with me? He says, why? They don't believe in the resurrection. Why are they being baptized for the dead? That, that's his point. And he doesn't say it's right, doesn't say it's wrong. He just makes a statement. Now, I think in order to understand this verse, we need to remember the context. Paul's primary concern in this chapter, remember we said this over and over, is to prove to the Corinthians that there is a resurrection of believers. Everybody remember that? That's what this chapter is all about. They didn't believe that normal Christian believers would rise from the dead. This whole chapter is proven to them, yes, there is a resurrection of believers. So what he's doing in this statement is he's simply pointing out the inconsistency of people who deny that there's a resurrection of believers, but then turn around and are baptized for those same people. Does that make sense? He's saying, that makes no sense. You don't believe in a resurrection, but yet you've got people who are being baptized for believers. Okay, So what he's pointing out to them, he's not saying, he's not making a statement of doctrine, he's not making a, a theological statement that you should do it or shouldn't do it or anything like that. He's just pointing out the inconsistency of what you're doing. He's, he's saying, think about it, think it through, what you're, what you're doing. For, let me give you an example. Let's say I was teaching here today, and I heard about a group, let's say a, 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 a church or somebody, that prayed for the dead, yet they didn't, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Everybody with me? 
let's just say I heard about this group, and they, they had prayers for the dead people, but yet they didn't believe in a resurrection. And then I might get up here and say to you, why do they pray for dead people who are not going to rise at all? Everybody with me? I might just make that statement. I say, why are those people praying for dead people if they don't believe in a resurrection? You see, what I'm doing there is, would, I, would you take that as an endorsement? I hope not. What I'm doing there is just pointing out the inconsistency of people who don't believe in a resurrection yet pray for the dead. See, that's exactly what Paul's doing. Paul's just pointing out the inconsistency of people who, who are baptized for the dead, but yet they don't believe in a resurrection. That's all that he's doing. He's saying that is completely inconsistent what you're doing. Okay, now, in fact, watch how you can tell this is what he's doing here because look at verses 30 to 32. He says, he goes on to give other examples. He says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Everybody see what he's saying? He's saying, if Christ is not raised, why are people being killed in the Colosseum in Rome? Do you, do you, ever, you ever go back um, Go back and read? Anybody read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Okay, young people, go read Fox's Book of Martyrs. But you better read it with a strong stomach. What was done to Christian men and women was terrible. One of the things is they would put them, tie them up in a croaker sack and throw them amongst wild animals and let them be attacked and eaten alive. That's what he's talking about here. And he's saying... What does that profit those people to die like that if there is no resurrection? Why am, I, why am I going through life and I'm in danger of being beaten and beheaded and crucified and stoned and robbed and shipwrecked? And why am I doing all this if there is no resurrection? In fact, he said, look at verse 34. He says, if there's no resurrection, let us eat and drink for tomorrow you're going to die. Just go get, if there's no resurrection, just go home, get as much out of life as you can. Cheat, steal, rob, whatever. Cheat on your wife, cheat on your husband. None of it matters. There's no resurrection. There's no judgment. There's no Jesus. There's no God. Just go home, eat, drink, because tomorrow you're going to die. But if there is a resurrection, you're going to live again, and you're going to answer to a, to a holy God, and you better start thinking about that. See, he's, he's, he's wanting them to see the inconsistencies of what they're doing. Finally, Paul concludes with this, verses 33 to 34. Now, this is an odd statement, too. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. Now, how many of you have ever quoted that to your kids? Anybody? Let's just pull that out. <laughs> Son, you see this? Bad company corrupts good morals. You hanging out with them kids? This is what's going to happen to you. What is that verse doing there? You ever thought about that? Do we ever even think about that? The whole chapter here is about the resurrection, about the resurrection of believers. The whole argument here that Paul's making is saying, look at, look at what you believe. Look at, what you're, look at what's being practiced and taught. Think it through. And then he comes here and says, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, here's another thing. Does everybody notice that's in quote? That's a quotation. He's quoting somebody. And I'll tell you in just a second who he is. Listen, 
this, this, you, there's nothing wrong. Okay, let me back up here. And we'll talk about this in just a second. I think it's okay if you want to pull that out and teach it to your kids. I mean, it's a, in fact, it's almost like a little proverb, okay, or a little saying. And it's true. It's a principle that's true down throughout the ages. But we want to look at it in, in context here. Remember, in the church, people are being taught there is no resurrection of believers. Everybody with me? That's the problem in Corinth. There is no resurrection of believers. Somebody is teaching that. And by the way, if you, if you believe that, what is the danger of that kind of belief? If you don't believe there's a resurrection, what would be the danger to your morals? You just do whatever you want to do. And there were people in the church doing whatever they wanted to do. They were sleeping with their brother's wife. They were committing adultery. Because, hey, there ain't no resurrection, right? This is all there is. See, what he's saying there is false teaching... And people that do false teaching or, or allow, that's dangerous. If you hang out with those kind of people, even in a church, it's going to mess you up. It's going to corrupt you. It's going to corrupt your, your morals. So Paul is telling us here that when we associate with false teachers or we, we associate with people who name the name of Christian but they in fact have no knowledge of God, your morals will be adversely influenced by them. False teaching never promotes holiness before God. As a note there, you, you, I, I pointed out, those are in quotes. He is actually quoting a Greek writer called Menander. This is the first quotation from Greek literature. He's actually quoting just a Greek writer. It has nothing to do with Scripture. And he's just basically pointing out a principle that even your secular writers... Even people who have no knowledge of God will tell you that if you hang around bad company, if you hang around people who don't practice the Word of God and teach the true Word of God, it will corrupt your morals. So even in the church, he said, don't, what he's saying is be very careful of, of false teaching like this that there is no, there is no resurrection. Okay? So what he's pointing out here is a principle that is really pertinent to people of all ages, that it is critical that we are careful whom we form relationships and associations with. Is it true for young people that they should be very careful who they associate with? Yes or no? It is no less true for you and I. It is no less true for a, for a, for a 70-year-old man. Be careful whom you form associations with. Be very careful. Bad company will corrupt good morals. That's all he's saying. Be very careful. Even in the church that you don't hang around, when you hang around with people who teach there is no resurrection, it's going to mess you up. Don't do it. Clean this stuff up. Get it out of the body. Keep the body pure. That's why he says don't be deceived. Don't be deceived that you can just let anything go and it'll be all right. He said don't, don't do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 1 Corinthians.